Did you know Shopify doesn't allow more than 100 combinations of options on a product? Fortunately, there's a solution. Bold Product Options app, the number one options app on Shopify with more positive reviews than any other. And it allows you to create as many options on products as you want in every type you can imagine. File uploads, text fields, text areas, radio buttons, checkboxes, color swatches, date pickers, and a couple others I forgot. And it's a huge time saver because when you create your options, you can apply them to one product or an entire store or an entire collection or a particular product type or any group of products you want with a single click. And you could save that option set to apply to any new products you add that need it. Now imagine trying to add gift wrapping option to every product in your store. Normally it'd be a nightmare. With the Bold Options app, it's one click. It can even adjust prices, or those options can actually be products too. So for example, an option could be add the matching hat or add a protective case. And then when your customers select it, it actually adds the product in the checkout. It's a total power move to sell bundles, and it doesn't even feel like it to the customer. Now there's nothing worse than looking at a whole bunch of fields when you're buying a product. It scares customers away. They may not even need to be filled out. So product options adds conditional logic. It's this tool that lets you show or hide options based off what customers pick. For example, if you select custom engraving, then we only want to show the custom engraving text field after they've checked that, and so on. Now, if you need sophisticated options, or just more than the standard 100 variant limit, this is the app you need. You can get started today with a 60-day free trial by going to ethercycle.com bold. That's ethercycle.com bold. Additional support for the unofficial Shopify podcast comes from SEO Manager. You already know the benefits of SEO. The higher you rank in search, the more visitors you get, and more visitors means more sales, which means more money in your pocket. But how do you do it? That's where SEO Manager comes in. It helps Shopify store owners get found in search engines more easily, and it's trusted by thousands of store owners. No surprise there, it's equal parts power, innovation, and ease of use. Think of SEO Manager as your optimization toolbox. Here's some examples. It can scan your site for issues, offer keyword suggestions, add structured data support, analyze missing pages and redirects, and even integrate with Kit, plus a ton more tools to help you be easily found in Google searches. Best of all, it's easy to get started. You can get started in minutes, and their friendly support team is always on standby if you need help. Seriously, I have met them. They are the best. And as a special offer to you, you can get 10% off SEO Manager forever when you sign up at seomanager.com slash unofficial. That's seomanager.com slash unofficial. Hello and welcome back to the unofficial Shopify podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Elster, recording on a, a chilly day in Skokie, Illinois, Westfield, Old Orchard Mall in the professional building, fifth floor, EtherCycle HQ, and I am excited today. I am talking to a Shopify merchant. Yes, it's been it's been a, a bit since we've had a, a Shopify merchant uh, to, to interview, to hear their story, and this gentleman has a tremendous story uh, that I look forward to hearing. We're joined today by... Darren Hager, who is the chief everything officer, the footwear designer for Heyday Footwear, and they launched their first line in 2008, which is just incredible. It these shoes look phenomenal, their niche, but I'm going to let him tell you about it, and we're going to walk through his story and see what what actionable 
items, tidbits, nuggets of gold we could tease out for you to apply to your own business. Darren, thank you for joining me. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you, Kurt. As I told you, I, I listen to your podcast all the time, and I'm a little starstruck uh, being on with you, but I will, I will do my best to get through it and, and uh, <laughs> give you great nuggets. That gave me goosebumps. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> right? No, legitimately, I did. Like, I, I hear a good song, I get goosebumps. You hear a genuine compliment, goosebumps. Mr. Mr. Hager, Heyday Footwear, what the heck is it? Uh, Heyday Footwear is the ultimate high-top gym sneaker for bodybuilding, powerlifting, and cardio, among other uh, fitness-related activities. Um, I started the brand in 2007 after being a corporate designer for about uh, 10 years in footwear, and then I was in uh, in toys for a couple of years out of design school, uh, working for Marvel Comics, which I hated. Uh, (laughs) I love the comics part. I hated the toy industry. So I went into the footwear industry. Was that a bit of a, like a, a never meet your heroes situation? Uh, I mean, the problem with the toy stuff is that I was a, a fan of like the X-Men uh, animated show on Fox and I knew all the characters and everything. Oh, did you watch but that ev- as a kid too? Oh yeah. Well, I wasn't a kid, unfortunately, but yes, I did. I, <laughs> I remember did that it. like third, fourth, fifth yeah. grade. I watched that and I would go to Walgreens and buy the, the comic every week and then watch the cartoon, and like that was my introduction to comics. Well, that's the show is why I was interested in, in basically taking a co-op from college and turning it into a you know full-time job after graduation. But my experience level with comics was uh, a casual one, and really I, I knew the TV show. But everyone else that worked there um, pretty much went to FIT for toy design, and their end goal was to work at Marvel, being an inker, um, What's or FIT? Uh, fashion Institute of Technology. Oh, okay. Where they have a big fashion and toy uh, program because that's you know New York City. Um, so I, I was an industrial designer, not a toy designer, not a comic book illustrator. Um, so it was tough for me because everyone there, their goal was to work for Marvel Comics. They were that good at illustrating, whereas you know I'm a product designer, not a you know action figure illustrator. So uh, you know. I worked on what I worked on there for a couple of years. I transitioned into footwear design, which many toy designers actually do for some reason, either t- either footwear or cars. Uh, they tend to be design disciplines that once you get into it, you don't really get out of it. Whereas if you were kind of a, a generalist, you know, maybe you design a toaster, this project, and then it's a medical device, and then it's you know something else where you could be doing kind of anything. But in footwear, pretty much once you get into footwear, that's where you're staying. Uh, luckily, it was something I, I always loved from the time that I would paint my Chuck Taylors uh, in high school with acrylic paint. I just never knew I wanted to be a footwear designer until I actually did it. So you were always a, you were always a creative at heart, and you knew you wanted to do um, industrial design, it sounds like. And you started with, like, yeah, I've got an interest in this thing. Um, you started uh, doing toys. For Marvel, and then moved into um, discovered like okay, that's not quite for me. Maybe I'm yeah. not hardcore enough. Whatever it is, um, but then found yourself in footwear. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I started out at a uh, a small design consultancy outside of Boston, where I was there for about a year. Then I moved out to the West Coast to Northern California, doing uh, outdoor adventure footwear for high tech sports, where I lived in Modesto, the capital of. Uh, 
methylphenidate uh, abuse. <laughs> they call it methesto because you can get great crystal there. Um, this is you're not the first person I've I've heard say this. No, like I've never been there, but the reputation is well known. So I went to Puma and I was there for about four years, uh, doing all you know all types of uh, athletic footwear and and sport style uh, athletic style stuff that was maybe not actual performance. Um, I left there after four years. I went to Sperry Topsider as senior designer. Uh, you know, a total 180 on product. Uh, you know, going from Puma to Boat Shoes. But these, dad. Are, these are all such cool brands. And I have, yeah. don't knock Boat Shoes. I've yet to own a pair, but I've gotten close. I have considered buying Boat Shoes several times now. They're super easy to slip on and off, but man, your feet will hurt walking in them all day. But they've, you know, they've actually made lots of changes to the classic Topsider. Um, I still like the van slip-ons. That's my casual go-to. It's just that well, the classic van slip-on. Yeah, they're never going to go out of style. Vans, you know, what they've done over the last 52 years uh, with a very originally basic product line is, you know, I mean, that's pretty amazing to basically have one style in production for over 50 years. Like car manufacturers don't have that. Yeah, I guess that I never thought about it. But like Vans, it's like an industrial design classic like Wayfarers or Chuck Taylors. So you bounced around a lot of places. This is a – I think this is a common thing for entrepreneurs in that I, I think there is a certain – I think you can learn and adopt an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial mindset. But I also think there's uh, just a category of personality um, that myself and my business partner certainly possess where you kind of push back against authority. You want to do your own thing. If something seems stupid, I don't want to bother with that. And like maybe it's a little bit of, of immaturity, um, but it's common – in entrepreneurs, uh, at least in interviews I've done on the show. And do you think you had any of that where it's like, you know, you, you wanted to design athletic shoes, like you knew what you wanted to do. And it sounds like other people recognized it too. I think maybe other people noticed it before I fully noticed it. Um, although honestly, to, to me, designing whatever type of shoes it may be, whether it's a boat shoe, a tactical boot, a sneaker, a high top, whatever, I'm using the design process that I, you know, I learned in design school, um, and it's the same process. It's the same creative problem solving. Whether I'm doing, you know, a shoe for bodybuilders or I'm doing a boat shoe, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So uh, I, you know, I, I think they most likely did me a favor at the time. I didn't realize it, but then quickly after leaving, I started getting lots of consulting work, including for Sebago, which was their number one competitor. Um, and for other boat shoe brands. And then eventually about five years ago, I was, uh, working as a consultant design director for another boat shoe brand. So I was certainly able to use my experience, um, you know, to further my career along, but regarding, I, I, I think you, I think you really need, or most people need to know what it is that they don't like so that they can figure out what they, they do like. And I didn't really like having a boss, especially some bosses. I've had a couple bosses that were great and others that I just did not respect at all. And you have to just, I think you have to go through some situations where it's like, man, I don't want to do that again. I got to figure out what it is that I want to do. But I just, I, I didn't want to work for a big corporate organization again, where, you know, they, they have their own agenda. If you do what they want, great. If you don't, They'll let it slide a couple times, and then you know you get in trouble for it. Right. Um, and, and I have ADD, so I am all over the place. I, and I have this is another. Up. I refer to it as entrepreneur lovingly as entrepreneurial ADD, but certainly it is a not uncommon 
entrepreneur trait. Um, and to unpack what you said a little bit, like two good points there. You said, man, I, I realized I didn't like having a boss and you, know, I, you have to try the th- Try the things you hate to know to learn that you don't like them. I've been right. watching that Marie Kondo show, Tidying Up, um, and of course, like that is one of the brilliant things she teaches you is you don't hold on to the things you don't like out of like right. some guilt or sunk cost fallacy. You go, wow, thank you for teaching me I don't like polo shirts, and then I can get rid of this. So I think that like that's a positive way to look at a what to reframe what is potentially a negative past job experience. And two, you're right. Um, like I think you've you've got that trait where it's like I just don't. I'm sure there's some leaders who could speak to you, but for the most part, you're like, man, I just, you know, I, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want a boss. I want to do my own thing. Um, and I, like, I, I feel for you. I had that same experience. I had a, a genuinely, I thought I had a dream job. Like I was working in um, uh, the auto parts industry. I was working in e-commerce. I'm like, those are my two favorite things. That's great. I love this. And it wasn't any fault of their own. I just knew like, man, I, after a year of it, I broke down crying one day, just tying my shoes to go to work. I've told that story so many times. Um, but it's true just because, like, I was fundamentally betraying myself without, like, it just pushing it way deep down. So we've had a similar you only experience have, here. You only have one life, you know. You, yes. You got to do, do what you love. Don't be miserable doing something. I mean, unless you have no other options. Um, right. I, luckily, I have a ridiculously supportive wife. Um, Always helpful who has, you know, made sure that the family is taken care of financially while I pursue this, this uh, dream of mine. But so we'll mark that down as an one of your unfair advantages. And there's nothing wrong with that. You just have to acknowledge it and have gratitude for it. Um, So for me, it was I just had uh, my living, I was just a, a single guy in the city with no debt, my living expenses were incredibly low. So I was able to eat by on like nothing for several years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was also 35. I mean, I had also I'd been in the corporate world for over 10 years. So I, you know, and I had several different jobs and several different industries. And I, I wasn't I didn't know exactly what I wanted, but I had a, somewhat of an idea of what I didn't want. Which um, is, it's just as important as the yeah. the other way around. Okay, so you, you bounced around a lot of jobs. You got good experience. You were you learned what you don't like. How do you end up? Uh, you are now you're, you're starting to do some consulting. Yep. Now, how do you design your first shoe where you're like, this is my shoe for me. I'm going to manufacture this. Um, I, one of the guys that actually I had worked with at both Donna Karen and Sperry Top Cider, who also got let go from both, both positions like I did. He started his own uh, tactical boot uh, brand. Um, he had wanted to start a tactical boot brand while at Sperry and the CEO said, that's a stupid idea. Uh, he, in doing research for that project, he wound up becoming friends with several uh, Navy SEALs who expressed to him that they needed tactical boots that they could wear with their swim fins. And you know, uh, when, they, when they board uh, ships, they climb up uh, you know, a rope ladder, they have their swim fins, and basically they were wearing Chuck Taylors on these mm. missions because they needed something that we could, they could throw away something slim that would fit into the swim fins, something that they would pour um, alcohol on the bottom of the soles to make them grippy, even stickier. Oh. Um, so he saw that there was a need for product for these elite tier one operators, and Sperry didn't want to do it. So he's like, I'm going to do it myself. So I was des- the design director working with him in designing these tactical boots. And at the same time, he's like, man, you should do this too. You should have your own brand. You've got so many great ideas. And you know, people... 
always have their own ideas and, and, you know, you've got your own point of view, you should do it. And I was like, really, you think so? And, you know, it took some convincing. Um, I, I started doing it. I had all the resources I need from a factory point of view and having done that type of work before more or less, um, you know, developing your own shoes at, when you're at larger corporations, you've got one person who's the designer, another person who's the developer. The developer is the one who actually takes the designer's, uh, drawings and communicates it to the factory so that they can actually get made. Um, and it, it, you may even have a separate person that does the CAD drawings, like in a big corporation, there's people that do individual roles, which, you know, to me at this point seems like insane, but that's, <laughs> that's how it is. Well, I had to do everything, um, which eventually resulted in my title, which I, you know, I'm CEO, but I wanted to put my own spin on it. And since I do everything, I'm chief everything officer, which still spells CEO. I like that. Um, so, you know, I had the, I had the connections in China and with other people. And so I started again. We're we're racking up those. There's a pattern here. We're racking up those unfair advantages, right? Because you've got not everyone has those connections. Um, right. Not everyone is in that circle. And this is a good place if you know this. Like this is the direction I want to go, but I don't know how to do it. Getting yourself just involved, surrounding yourself with those people helps dramatically. And then you had this um, this friend who was doing what what you would eventually come to do. He was manufacturing, designing, and manufacturing his own um, boots. And he recognized, again, someone else recognized it in you and said, hey, this is a thing you should do. And it's sort of like, yeah, that permission, it helps give you permission. It helps make you aware of it. It could be very helpful to have those supportive people around you. Like totally off topic, purely out of curiosity, what is, uh, can you tell us who the the tactical boot is? Uh, Yeah, it's an, kind of. I'll tell you a short but interesting story. It's called OTB, which means, um, uh, God, what does it mean? It's been so year, so many years. Uh, on the beach or over the beach. Um, so he built up this brand himself. He sold it to New Balance. He the day that he closed on the deal was the day that his house was going to be foreclosed. Jeez. <laughs> oh, so he literally like signed the deal, paid off his second mortgage and his main mortgage. He got it. They kept him on. Uh, they, he made, they made him a vice president. And after a year, they shut down his brand for no reason, Ooh. no warning. They literally just shelved it. They spent a couple million dollars on it, and it was just like, eh, shelve it. You're fired. You're fired. You're done. He then went off and consulted again for several years, doing the same thing. And man, he, he was always friends with the the, the chairman of uh, New Balance, Jim Davis. At some point, he reached out to Jim Davis, and they gave him the trademark back, and he bought the brand back from New Balance and has now uh, partnered with, uh, I forget what big tactical supplier, but is now like the, the house brand for this major tactical supplier. So he literally, he, he went from zero all the way to the top, had it taken away, and got, got it back, which I don't think- Is this I've Ultima never- Boots? Ultima uh, no, that's a different brand. No? Who okay. My, my old boss at the outdoor brand now owns that brand. Oh, um, okay. I just got a pair of those last week. They're fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Small world. So, All yeah, right. Just such a cool story that he was able to get it back. I don't think that really happens very much when something goes under and then it, you, you know, it gets revived. No, that's a, that, that one is also a good entrepreneurial story. Okay, we're talking about you, and I totally, t- 
took us down a rabbit hole there. Um, all right, so your friend says, so you've got these connections. Your friend says, why not you, right? Why don't you do this too? What happens then? Um, I had I had an idea. At the time, it was like 2007, 2008, and sneakerhead was kind of the, the trending term back then. That's when sneakerheads was like first getting into the news. Um, as, as, Thanks as to a, like blogs like Fat Lace. Um, and hype and those, beast, hype and beast, hype beast yeah. and all those. Um, and I didn't want everything basically was based on Air Force Ones back then. If you remember like right. Bape and there was another brand called Greedy Genius that was a knockoff of Bape and Bape was a knockoff of the Air Force One low and they just changed the swish on the side to a star with a lightning bolt, which is a Japanese brand called a bathing ape. Um, no, yeah, like a, no, I'm familiar. You know, a camo, camo Planet of the Apes gorilla. Yes, because um, – I am off about that camo jacket I was wearing. I've had people go, hey, is that by Mr. A Bathing Ape? And I go, no, because that would be way more than I'd spend on a blazer. Yes. So it was very expensive. But everyone was basing their, you know, their new unique looks on Air Force Ones. Well, I, I didn't want to do that because, of course, I have to you know, be the rebel. But I really liked um, uh, Red Wing wedge-soled work boots. Oh, I love so, you. Instead of doing, I'm wearing sneakers, Red Wings right now. Instead of doing sneakers based on, on uh, Air Force Ones, mm-hmm. I took the Red Wing style welted sole and did a sneaker upper on that. Um, and Red Wing at the time it was huge in Japan. Um, it was big in Europe. It was sort of you know the the very beginnings of that metrosexual uh, lumberjack you know hipster trend that would come a couple of years later but you know everyone with a beard in brooklyn heights is wearing flannel uh you know japanese selvage denim and and red wings oh yeah this was me yeah. this still yeah, is me mean, with the beard i mean yeah the yeah camo, a beard and yep, jeans yep, that's my standard yep. outfit um so we've got heyday footwear it's a catchy name i like it um you've started uh you've designed this unique sneaker because you'll you saw the trend you go all right i'm gonna buck that trend we're gonna do something a little different but mm-hmm. still like grabbing recognizing the importance of um, like this other trend of uh, people appreciating these old red wing boots and using that, that style um, as the start for your inspiration that like at some point you've got the connection. So you, you've got these manufactured in China. Yeah, I, I did. I did. I had, I had, I had um, a, a friend of mine that I had worked with at both Puma and stride, right. Or Sperry um, had, he was a developer, so he actually made the introductions to the factory because while I had been to China at that point probably 20 or 30 times, it's not really the designers that have the working relationships with the factories. It's the developers who spend much more time in Asia and in communicating with the factories because they are the ones that are communicating with the factories. It's not usually the designer that is communicating directly with China. It's usually going through the developer who has more of a production engineering uh, focus to their job. They're not designers. They may say, oh, you know what? There's this really cool new material or this great foam, and I, I think you, know, you could use it in this way, but it's up to the designer to figure out what that looks like. Um, and is this, are they the person who also figures out, okay, this is what the cost of goods sold is yes. going to be. So it, like, this is our target, so here's our materials. It's sort of. It's probably split between the product line manager who is working on the business case and then the developer who has to say, well, you know, the, the PLM says, oh, we need a shoe that costs, 
that the FOB cost is $30 and it's going to retail for $60 and it's going to have these three features in it to go up against this other brand at this type of store for this cut for this type of customer. Then the designer starts working on a design, but it's the developer who then has to say, well, you know what? You're not going to be able to actually manufacture that that way. You need to do it within the constraints of what's doable or what the factory is willing to try. And these are the costs. And, you know, if you change this material to this material, you could probably save 20 cents per yard. So, you know, they're involved in in the costing, but not in basically right. They, they might be involved in helping with the product brief, but it's the usually the product line manager who is determining the business case okay. uh, for it. But in your situation, it all stops with you. Right. Really like early on, it's just you. It, it, was, ju- it, was, okay. it was just me. Um, so yeah, so, so you get I this, started, you design this initial shoe, you get it yep. manufactured, shows up in a, a pallet, shows up at your garage, I'm assuming. Yes, correct. Then uh, what? You got to sell these things. Where do they go? Uh, well, at, at that time, uh, you know, direct to consumer wasn't really a thing. So it was all wholesale. You know, what, what stores are you going to sell to? Um, there's always been uh, multiple trade shows throughout the year for, for footwear brands where they, you know, the, they meet with retail buyers and the buyers place orders based on samples usually. And they would say, you know, I want, uh, you know, a hundred pairs in these sizes and you're usually showing a season in advance. So if the trade show is in January, it's probably for something that's going to get delivered in the summer or maybe even the fall. Um, so I started going to the expos and the trade shows, uh, mostly in Vegas and New York. Uh, I managed to land a couple of stores who wanted to take a chance. Um, I had uh, one uh, well-known boutique here in Boston, the Tannery. I had Sporty LA in Los Angeles, which was kind of the equivalent you know, sneaker high-end boutique. I had uh, a retailer or two in Japan. I had a couple of other little places. Um, and that's where it started with, you know, I think 300 pairs was, was the initial run among four or five styles. And the shoes on that pallet were delivered to my garage the week that my son was born. And my wife, as I told you earlier, had my son in the baby sling on her chest as she was sat in the garage with me and helped me count inventory, um, that very first production. So that's how I remember the first production. It arrived in August of, uh, 2007 it would be great if i could remember my son's birthday um and i and i started there and then the brand slowly started to take off i started getting some press uh it started out with small um you know sort of the small free uh the free magazines you might pick up weekly at the you know in the subway um alternative press was one and i think there were some others where they do a you know a buyer's guide or or whatever and you start there, and then other other uh, stylists start seeing it, and then you start moving up the ranks. Um, same thing happens on the on the sales side. So I went from a couple of little boutiques. Um, I got in with Amazon uh, wholesale. Um, I got a ten door test from Finish Line. Um, you say a ten door test? What does that mean? Uh, that means you know Finish Line has I don't know two thousand stores or whatever it is. They're not going to. They're not going to put a new brand into 2,000 stores. They'll give you a few stores to test the market and see, you know, does it work? And if they sell through quickly and at the rate that they're looking for, then you'll get another order from them. And maybe it'll be 20 doors or 100 doors. 
and by doors, it means locations. Okay. Um, so I had finish line and then I got into Bloomingdale's and we had five locations for Bloomingdale's and then it, you know, it's, it kept, uh, growing, not huge, but it was growing. Um, I had a sales manager who had a, a, an agency in Kansas city. And so it was him and four or five sales reps that were going out across the country selling the shoes. Um, at the time, it was getting in you know, 2009, 2010, the economy is in the tank. Um, the big chains that we sold to at the time uh, did not have the sell-through that they wanted. So Finish Line did, did their you know, 1,500-pair test in 10 doors, and then they didn't order again. Bloomingdale's, uh, I was in the five stores, New York, uh, Atlanta, uh, L.A., Miami, and Chicago, I think. And they initially started me on consignment and then decided they were never going to take me off consignment. Oh, jeez. Uh, which – and then dealing with Macy's as the parent company um, when you're a small brand and you have to do EDI. What's that? Uh, electra- electronic data uh, interchange, which is basically how their orders and invoices are communicated back and forth with very large – brands and retailers it, you're not giving them a line sheet and they're not sending you back an excel spreadsheet it's all done with this uh archaic uh system called edi okay and um you know if the label's not on the box within a quarter of an inch of where they say it is that's a chargeback if oh. the shoot, if the shipment gets gets to them a day late because of whatever reason that's a chargeback if you know, whatever it is, they're going to figure out how to start taking money from you. Now, they weren't, they weren't even buying the product from me. I had to give them the product. And if it sold, they'd pay me. But they'd pay me every 90 to 120 days after they took out their, you know, their, their penalties. So, yeah, I was, in, I was in Bloomingdale's. Was it a good experience? Not really. Hmm. Uh, I'd call up uh, the 59th Street store in New York. Hey, do you have the new super ship from Heyday Footwear? Oh, I don't think we carry them. Is that what you want to hear from a salesperson? That they don't even know that they carry your brand? If they don't even know that they carry your brand, there is no freaking way that they're going to be able to sell a customer on the features and benefits, especially if it's a brand that's new to the customer that they don't necessarily know. And that was when I was like, all right, I think something needs to change. Uh, At that time, and if you want to interrupt me, feel free to. Oh, no, this is uh, this is good. I picked up a book uh, called The New Rules of Retail by Robin Lewis, who was like a big New York retail guy. I'll put it in the show notes. I I always mention this book in interviews because it did totally change the course of my business. So the book starts out telling the evolution of retail. You had the general store. You could only get stuff if you could get to the store. Then Sears Roebuck catalog came out, and all of a sudden, from anywhere in the country, you could order dishes, cars, a house. You could even buy a house in this catalog. Then you had department stores in the 30s and 40s that, that came about where you had all different types of product in one central location. Then you had specialty stores, and you had your discount stores, and you had Kohl's, and you had Sears, and you had uh, Target. And then by 2010, when the first edition of the book came out, it was like the next wave is cutting out the stores completely, and brands are going to start selling on the internet directly and cut out the stores completely. Why lose half your margin and, and all of your control over your brand when you could just sell directly? 
And I was like, well, everything's going badly for me at this point. Um, do I close up or is there something else that I can do with the business? And, you know, my sales manager, they weren't making any money. He quit. And I was like, shit, I have no sales manager now. I have no sales reps. What am I going to do? I can't do everything. I can't be on the road all the time and doing everything else. So I read this book and I was like, okay, I know that people want the shoes. And I didn't like giving up control to, you know, basically I gave up control of the brand to five or 10 buyers. You know, the, the buyers from Finish Line said, oh, we want this shoe and we want it in these colors. And the price that we told you we wanted it at, by the way, we need it to be $20 cheaper than you, than you originally told us. So it's like the shoes that we did for them were absolutely horrible because that's what they asked for. We gave them exactly what they wanted. The buyers from Bloomingdale's, I'd show them a range of shoes and they'd pick the ones that I really felt like, why are they picking those shoes? Those aren't going to sell. Um, and that's how it is when you're, when you're in with these bigger brands that have uh, these bigger stores that have buyers, the buyers are deciding unless you have the, the, the capital in the bank to say, you know what, Bloomingdale's, I don't agree with you and I'm not going to do business with you. Most people aren't going to do that, especially starting out. You land some big accounts, you'll do whatever you have to do to get that business. Except I found that, that they weren't serving my end customer. I, I, I or I wasn't serving the end customer. I was I was working for these ten buyers, doing what they wanted, except they weren't picking the right shoes or selling them in the right way. That sounds like uh, a deal with the devil. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Amazon's trying to do the same thing. I'm sure you saw the article this week about how Amazon's trying to invest in direct to consumer brands by giving them up to a million dollars in exchange for only selling on Amazon. And Distilled and um, some other big brands were like, "No, nah, I don't think we're going to do that." Um, and it was the same thing. Uh, I just didn't think that these people knew what they were doing. Uh, I thought I knew better. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. But reading that book, I was like, I can do this on my own. And so I started. You know, I had a website built. I had it rebuilt. Um, I was on a platform that was, wasn't an e-com platform. That is, uh, I don't even know what it is that they're doing. But this other platform that I won't mention, the founders were originally a design. It was a design student from uh, uh, maybe RISD who designed the first website. And then he moved out to San Diego, started his own agency, came up with a storefront uh, code. I was the first store on it. The first year or two, I got lots of attention from them. Didn't know anything about e-com. Um, and then as the business started to grow, their, their business grew. And I wasn't the, the guinea pig anymore. And they were really tired of my daily like, hey, can you change the code on this? Or I need to upload some new photos. Can you take care of that? Or, you know, can, is there any way we can do this? And they kind of started ignoring me because uh -oh. uh, it was too much trouble for them. So I was listening. God, maybe it might have even been your podcast. I can't remember. But there, someone did a podcast on another startup sneaker brand called Greats, which is sort of my competitor in that they're direct to consumer, but they're not an athletic brand. They're like a casual sneaker brand. And the founder of Greats was talking about how he was on Shopify. And so literally I heard that podcast. I went on Shopify.com. I rebuilt my store in two hours and that was it. I was like, this is, I can't believe how easy this is. What I had to ask them and beg them for weeks to accomplish, I was doing in 10 minutes. What, uh, how long ago was this? Um, I started on Shopify August 1st, 2016. Oh, okay. So not, 
not that long ago when you started selling direct to consumer on this other platform. What you know, was it crickets? Was it yeah, hockey stick success? What what happened? Uh, not hockey stick, but definitely uh, growth was slow but steady. Um, at the time, I I had also gotten a fantastic uh, licensing deal with. Uh, what was a really, really big video game on Xbox and, and PS3 called Saints Row the Third, which was like a, a Grand Theft Auto type. Right. I managed to get the shoes coded into the game. So on arrival day, they were in the game on the disc. You would go, you'd take your character into the clothing store in the game and, the, and you know, outfit your character in whatever you wanted. The only branded anything in the store was Heyday Footwear, purple anaconda high tops which we made for the game we sent we made samples we sent it to the software company they digitized it it was in the game exactly and you could run around and we wound up doing a different shoe different release for each gang there were five gangs and then they they you know they started releasing a lot of dlc so we were in in lots of dlc with them and then somehow the software publisher thq went bankrupt oh, and, that no. was, and that was the end of my contract and my license um well how did but, man that that's like a whole episode in itself Wait, i know a what kind of um what, what kind of effect did that have how did people know that like those were real shoes you could buy in real life did they just google it we, we promoted it together okay i mean saints row was i mean it was on their blog they were selling the shoes on yeah. their own merch site as well as us selling it and we were promoting it like crazy you know because we were trying to figure out, is there a way for you to actually buy the real shoes in-game, like with real money? Which and could we were be just, done now. It could be done now, but in, in five years ago... Yeah, it that's was, like a last year that became possible kind of thing. Right, right. It, five years ago, it was just, on, especially on the last-gen uh, consoles, uh, PS3 and Xbox, it was too much of a leap. But we were thinking about it back then. Um, we wound up doing a crazy amount of business and believe it or not it's now been we're in 2019 it's been six years i probably still have 10 or 15 queries a week do you still have the saints row shoes and why don't you make them well they went bankrupt and at the time i had reached out to the coo of the the new ip owner because another software company uh bought the intellectual property and it fizzled out and that was five years ago well, two months ago, so we're now in negotiation to have the shoes continue to be in the re-release of the game this year and for us to make the shoes again. Congratulations. Um, so, you know, it, I mean, it took six years to come back. So how, um, briefly, when you first got this deal, how do you even get a deal like that? Uh, who approached who? At the time, I had a distributor uh, for the U.K., uh, a guy who had done very well for himself, uh, a, a wealthy, you know, well-known guy in the UK, and the CEO of the software company THQ had been his friend, and so the distributor was like, "You want to have your shoes in a video game?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." He's like, "Well, talk to my friend. He's going to set you up with a great deal." Where there was no advance guarantee, which is something that you rarely find in a licensing deal. Basically, they want you. Give us $100,000 advance, and when you sell your commissions or your royalty rate is past 100000 then you start paying us again. Well, I got this deal with nothing up front, 
Then I got them to agree to buy a few hundred pairs of the shoes to sell on their site, which funded the production of the shoes that I bought from my site. And, you know, it was just like a cascade of, I can't believe this just worked. Um, so when this happened, you st- you weren't yet on Shopify. No, no, this was this was okay. This was way before Shopify, and the first day that we started selling them, we crashed the server. Always, a, it's a good problem to have. So yeah, I mean, it, it's hopefully going to be full circle that we're going to be back in the Saints Row game this year and be able to work with them, uh, the the uh, the new developers of the game on that for the Nintendo Switch, um, and you know, licensing was. Uh, was a very interesting way of of getting more market share because you're taking someone else's brand or character or whatever it is and hopefully co-opting their audience and having something unique to offer your customers but so licensing was kind of a uh, an important step um i at at that point right around 2014 uh we had the brand had gone from kind of streetwear um, when I was selling wholesale, when I went to uh, direct-to-consumer, we kind of fell in with hip-hop dancers. Um, I wound up graduating from the free weekly uh, you know, magazine at the subway station to having the shoes on So You Think You Can Dance for five seasons. Um, I had shoes on MTV, on, on Trey Songs, who was a, an R&B artist who had his own show for a season or two. Like It just kind of went everywhere. And so I was in like this hip-hop dance market. 2014, I'm on Instagram. I see a bodybuilder wearing my shoes in the gym. And then I start seeing more and more bodybuilders wearing my shoes in the gym because they have- and Are you a bodybuilder? At the time, I mean, I always kind of worked out, but no, at that time I wasn't. I am now though. And the shoes are, have flat soles. You want to have your foot make full ground contact without having your heel elevated like in a running shoe. You don't want the shoes to compress when you're doing deadlifts or squats because that can throw off your balance and it, it changes the, the, um, the way the power gets transmitted from your feet through your, through your body. Um, they wanted high tops because everyone was wearing low top running shoes. And at the time, if you wore retro Air Jordans to the gym, you were like, oh my God, look at that guy. He's like so cool. Except Air Jordans, especially the retro ones, aren't made as well as they were 20 years ago. And they're really uncomfortable. That was the market. I realized, I was like, I got to go into this market. I ditched all the dance stuff and went full steam ahead into the fitness market. And that's where we are. It's, God, it's been like three and a half, four years already. And, uh, you know, 2018, we're up 25% over 2017. Um, all the numbers are up and we're growing. Hold up. We'll hear more after this quick break. Support for this podcast comes from Simpler, a new way to staff 24-7 sales and customer service on your Shopify store. It works with your existing email and chat tools, so setup is quick and easy. Simpler provides on-demand, U.S.-based customer service specialists to answer your customers' most common questions. Close more sales with Simpler by staffing your email and live chat with 24-7 Simpler specialists. Find out more at simpler.ai. That's S-I-M-P-L-R dot A-I. And now back to the show. Hit me. So this is, you have, man, that's quite the story. You Recapping, you have, uh, you jumped around from, from job to job trying to find, find yourself. Eventually said, you know, why not me? Started consulting. Said, why not me again? Started making your, manufacturing your own shoe. 
So that uh, followed, you know, what made sense at the time. You're like, well, this is what you do. This is what you knew. Sold it to big box stores. Discovered that's making a deal with the devil um, and pivoted the model. Started selling direct to consumer and came up with this uh, absolutely brilliant opportunity that you worked out, which selling the the sneakers in Saints Row, uh, the coolest thing, um, which helped really uh, get the brand off the ground. Then uh, uh, from there, switched to Shopify. And now... We have gone long here. Um, I want to talk about your your Shopify site a little bit. Uh, it looks great, and I just want to go over. <laughs> you, you can comment on it. A couple things I you do that I really like. Um, number one, uh, the you've got this this great mega menu, and the very first thing on there is shop. And when that thing drops open, there's several categories. There's photo, but it gives you the product catalog isn't gigantic, but you're giving people all kinds of different ways to get to the thing they want. So the very first thing, you've got it broken down by style. But I'm new to the brand. I don't know what the styles mean. Super shift versus super freak? What the heck? Right. But then you also, so then you go, all right, you could shop by activity, color, type, or size. So that's, I think shopping by size is brilliant. So it's like, well, I can't buy the shoes that don't fit me. So I go straight to men's size 11. Bam. Now I'm just on a page of, hey, here's all the shoes that will fit you, Kurt. So it just narrows it down. Um, It's brilliant. And then in terms of the designs, they're crazy and so fun. They are not like uh, anything I've seen before. Um, they're approaching like costume wear level stuff. And my favorite is the craziest one on here, Turquoise Black Super Freak 2.0 High Top Sneaker for Cardio and Bodybuilding. Um, that's just so fun, so glorious. Um, and I think like that's that's from day one been your your goal is to you know build something that excites you, that you think is... That's cool. That's functional. That's practical. Yep. Um, and certainly you've done that. Um, and then also on this site, you make a bold claim. So many people, especially early, are modest in what they say. So when you land on the site, you've got this big hero image. It's beautiful. It shows the sneakers in action, looks great, um, and has this bold headline. The ultimate gym sneaker for bodybuilding, powerlifting, and cardio. And I heard you use that line yeah. when we were – I said, tell me about it. Um, it wasn't like, yeah, we make these shoes. They're okay. Like, no, you believe in it. And that, that comes through. Um, and then, yeah, just like the, a lot of featured products on the page, social proof on the page, really, um, really well done. Thank you. So, and of course I've linked to that in the show notes. The only thing I, I would say is, uh, under the logo, throw a, throw a tagline in there, man. The, the last version of the theme there was a, a place to put in a tagline, and in, they updated it uh, in December, and they took that feature out. It did the, the tagline is "It's not hype, it's heyday," which was underneath the logo, except the theme developers took it out. I suppose I could probably uh, have them put it back in. Um, but the, you know, we're on a third-party theme, so it's a theme that's not in the Shopify theme store, um, which means I've had to learn uh, more about the back end of the site than I probably would need to if I was on a Shopify theme. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I mean, the, the Shopify gurus, I have to say, probably are one of the best customer service uh, platforms across any any industry that I've come across. I mean, I, I think the gurus are so fantastic. I probably had one guru that I was like, meh, you know, I could have had better <laughs> advice. And the number, I talked to them, I don't know, five, 10, 20 times a week sometimes, depending on what the <laughs> issues are. And they're just always 
fantastic, except they will say, well, you're on a third-party theme, and we don't really support third-party themes. If you get the right guru, some of them will know HTML or, or CSS, and they, you know, they can provide more assistance than others. But um, you know, it's a third-party theme called Shoptimized, which is uh, Shoptimized. You know, it's a great name. CRO focus, conversion rate optimization focus. It's my own feeling about the site is it's busier and there's a lot more going on than sort of the, you know, the really slick and 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 barren and aesthetically pleasing sites that you may see in other, you know, other places or other brands have. Except the thing you have to to keep in mind is I'm not here to have a pretty site. I'm here to sell shoes. And yes. so what are the features and benefits of the site that are going to help me to sell more shoes, not just have someone, oh, wow, it's a really, you know, that's a really slick looking site. So there's a lot of shit going on on my site, which I'm aware <laughs> of, but it works. In fact, the theme developers have a, a list, you know, on their, on their landing page, 30, 30 different, um, things that you can turn on or off, um, you know, you know, upsell, uh, cross sell deal of the day, you know, pop, email pop up, you know, uh, FOMO type, uh, you know, social proof, everything you could think of, they have kind of built into the There's site. some clever stuff in here. So it's like, yeah, like under the review stars, it says 15 sold in the last 24 hours. Yep. Um, after the cart form, it says, uh, pairs remaining 81 sold. And this is brilliant. 10 viewing this product. Uh, you address shipping. You know, we ship fast. All uh, in-stock orders leave our warehouse within one business day. If you want another one, another um, urgency-inducing thing, you could add a – if you can guarantee a cutoff time for shipping same day, you could do a, cu- a countdown timer. We act, That is actually a feature on the site, but the the occasional times when you know something doesn't get there in time, then you have a customer who's – and, oh, you said it was going to be here by Friday, and it's not here until Monday. Well, I, you know, yes, it's not guaranteed. We ship everything by priority mail, standard, but you know, the postal service doesn't guarantee priority mail. You're not guaranteed to get it by 10 a.m. the next day. It's usually two to four days. So, I, I've I have had that on, but I found that you know what? Sometimes it just doesn't get there when the site says it's going to, and then you have to deal with. Um, you know, a, a pissed off customer. So right. rather than have to, to deal with that, I shut that feature off. Maybe it'll go back on. Part of it is that we do a lot of pre-orders. And no matter, even if I would put pre-order, you know, I changed the, the add to cart button to pre-order now. It says right at the top, things you need to know. This item is a pre-order and will ship approximately in eight weeks. Whatever it is, doesn't matter how many times you put it. People don't see it, so you know that that uh, you know if you order by noon, you'll have it in three days. On this site, you can't custom customize that by product. It's it's across the board for every product. So if I had ten products that were in stock and two products that were a pre-order, it's going to say on the pre-order site, order by ten a.m. You'll have it tomorrow, except you won't have it for three months. Right. So, that was part and there's of, ways around that. That was part of the issue, um, and so I got rid of that feature. Um, but that's you know with Shopify and I'm sure with every other platform, you need to try things. And if it doesn't work, you you know you try something else. I mean, I I go through so many apps. Um, you know, I put them in for a couple of days. I do the free trial. I delete them right. if they don't perform. 
Um, and I have, I probably have 30 apps running on the site, um, which is crazy. Even with, that's not that unusual, but even with Shoptimize, which, which, you know, they have a lot of stuff built in, but like their social proof, it's just not as good as FOMO. And I've had FOMO before, but now that I really, I know I have 900 over 900 five-star reviews. I kind of don't need the somewhat fake social proof. Um, it also, you know, 85% of my traffic is mobile. And so you got to take that into consideration. How many pop-ups do you really need on mobile? You know, um, it just gets distracting. And then sometimes things on mobile don't work the same as they do on desktop. And then you've, you know, maybe there's a problem that you're not even aware of until someone says, Hey, I can't close this window. There's, there's a pop-up in front of it that I can't get rid of. So you have to really look at a, a mobile strategy and a desktop strategy. If you could redesign the site right now, just snap your fingers, what what would you change about it? What do you hate about it? What would you change about it? Uh, there isn't really much that I, I hate. I mean, there, there's a little bit of the way that the ATC button uh, is placed. There's some text above and below it that needs to really be recentered. And I just, I haven't bothered to do it and I haven't bothered to contact the developer you know, to see just some, just some minor, like little some minor, polished stuff, some fit and finish, minor stuff that, you know what? Nobody notices it. I notice it because I'm on this site 24 hours a day. My customers, they don't even read the text. I mean, they, trust me, they're not seeing it. Um, but, uh, I, I, one thing that I, I am concerned about, but I may not actually be a concern is uh, page load time. You know, you, you do Google speed test and, Oh, I hate that thing. You know, the, the, <laughs> you know, your site is in the 20th percentile of whatever, and you have eight, these 18 things to fix. Well, you can't do anything about the CDN because that's Shopify. Yep. The, you can't do anything about uh, some of the image caching or, or mini, you know, most things you can't do the minification. Although I did find an app that does it. I'm not sure if it's actually doing it, but you, it's very hard to check off all the things that Google says you need to do to make your speed, your, speed your, your site run faster most of it extremely is just yeah. you know it's shit that just can't be done uh maybe you could do it on shopify plus but i'm not on shopify plus um so no, it's mostly the same experience like you, you're still gonna run into the same problems it's like you can't get rid of the cd you a lot of this stuff is like server-side configuration and the truth of it is it it's like it's really a list of best practices that would not necessarily have an improvement so it's checking you against this list um, that is like this one-size-fits-all kind of arbitrary thing. And that's what's so frustrating about um, Google PageSpeed or GT Metrics, those, any of those speed tests that yeah. make recommendations like that. Yeah. So I so mean, the, I, I would like to ahead. work on the, on the, uh, the speed of the site. I mean, I, I can't even be sure that the speeds that they're, that they're giving you are actually – accurate because i don't really have too many people complain about the speed you see yeah you know sites that load in under three seconds have 40 percent more conversions than sites that are slower than that but i think unless you can get it to load in a second i don't know that someone notices now 10 seconds okay that's a long time but right. the difference between one second and three seconds or four seconds um and also where you know what what kind of um wi-fi are they on are they you know on their phone outside on cell are they, you know, I have 300 over 300 in my office. Sometimes it still doesn't seem fast enough. I mean, do you need gigabit service to see a site load in a second? I don't know. But everyone's experience is going to be different. Even 
different times that they go on the site, depending on where they're located, what device they're on. So you just can't worry about everything. I have so many things I have to worry about. You have to prioritize that, you know what, maybe this is one of the things I can kind of just let it slide. It's just not that important. Or if there is some solution out there, if I find it, I find it. If not, I have other other more pressing issues to to worry about. You, you know, you have to prioritize stuff, especially, you know, I'm I do I have a business partner who's in China who worries who does the development stuff. And I have a somewhat full-time marketing consultant who's probably somewhere in Spain where he's based. But I'm basically it. I, I as chief everything officer, I run the site, I design the shoes. I ship everything out of my house. Now, my wife's not very happy because we have a split level and the entire lower level of the house, about 1,500 square feet, is my office and my storage. Um, but that's, you know, that works for me because I'm able to do it all myself. If you had to go, this is my final question. Yep. If you had to go back in time, what would you tell yourself? Oh, shit. Uh, I mean... I suppose the smarter thing to do when starting your own brand would be to have a co-founder that's probably got an MBA, um, or you know, if you're a tech company, having a technical uh, co-founder. Um, I didn't. I did this myself, and I originally went into design because I didn't want to be in quotes business. And now, ninety percent of my time is quotes business, and ten percent, or maybe even five percent, is designing shoes. Um, it just—I think it would have been helpful. To have a business partner who who knew the numbers and you know could do it. I, I, my ADD affects my ability to do math easily, so I get you know I get anxious and 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 flustered around you know Excel and trying to you know try to come up with you know figure out certain formulas and whatever. So if I could go back in time, I would say I would love to have an MBA as a partner. I think things would have gotten much bigger, much faster had I done that. Darren, you have done a incredible job and have a, a tremendous journey behind you, ahead of you. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have gotten to talk to you. Uh, final question, where could people go to learn more about you? Heydayfootwear.com, H-E-Y-D-A-Y, footwear. And I want to offer um, all of your subscribers a 20% discount on the site with code UNOFFICIAL. Darren, thank you. So hopefully everyone can get into their heyday. One final note before we go. I wanted to remind you about the one Shopify theme my agency has used more than any other. It's called Turbo by Out of the Sandbox. And as its name implies, it's built for speed. But that's not why I love it. I love it because it's the most configurable, feature-packed theme for Shopify today. Features like predictive search, easy mega menus, infinite scrolling collections, and a ton of page templates. Calling it a theme doesn't do it justice. I think of it as a rapid prototyping tool for Shopify stores. And I've got a special offer for you. You can get it today at a 20% discount when you use the code PODCAST20. You can even try it for up to two weeks, and if you don't love it, Out of the Sandbox will give you a full refund. To check it out now, go to ethercycle.com turbo and use code PODCAST20 at checkout. That's ethercycle.com turbo. If you'd like to help us spread the joy of entrepreneurship, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, the unofficial Shopify Podcast.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening on a smartphone, 
tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast. You'll find some episode notes, including some details you might have missed. You'll also find offers from our sponsors. Please support our show by supporting them, and thank you. The unofficial Shopify podcast was recorded and hosted by me, Kurt Elster, and produced by my business partner, Paul Rita, for our Shopify partner agency, EtherCycle. Check us out at EtherCycle.com. The unofficial Shopify podcast is distributed by EtherCycle LLC. We'll be back next week with more value bombs for Shopify store owners. If you're looking for more high quality and actionable advice on learning the business of e-commerce, join thousands of other Shopify store owners on our totally free newsletter at eCommerce Bootcamp. That's eCommerce-Bootcamp.com.